Welcome to The Great Social Experiment, Episode 2. Why should we care about how we treat kidney failure in our country? Maybe you don't have it or know somebody who does, but chances are you've at least experienced the pain of a loved one suffering from a chronic health condition, the feeling of being more or less debilitated, and the frustration of perhaps even having the best insurance, but still leaving the doctor with either no information or the confidence that he or she would have the time or the energy to think about your situation after your copay. Now, as a universal program, you would think that kidney care would be a model for our health system, something to aspire to in terms of quality of care, equity, and cost. And regardless of whether you've experienced a chronic illness, it's the cost and what we're getting for it that affects us all. While about 20% of patients with kidney failure have private insurance, the government, through Medicare and Medicaid, insures about 75 to 80%. And the cost of doing that is probably more than you think. What would it cost for this program? At the present going rates, it would cost $10,000 per patient, so this would be... Uh... This will be $400 million per year. And it's interesting, since 1972, the Medicare end-stage renal disease program has paid both for dialysis and for kidney transplantation. Professor Rachel Patzer again. And at the time that dialysis was initially covered, there weren't as many patients on dialysis. So I think the expectation was that this wouldn't be a growing problem and a growing expense. At the start, it was less than 1% of Medicare's budget, and now it's more than 6% of Medicare's budget. 6% of Medicare's budget is about 1% of the whole federal budget. To put that into perspective, the Department of Education is between 2 and 3% of the federal budget. We spend more on kidney failure alone than the individual budgets of the Department of Energy, Labor, Housing and Urban Development, the State Department, NASA, and all U.S. foreign aid. To put it just one more way, dialysis costs us between $75,000 to $100,000 per year per patient, and there are more dialysis clinics in our country than Burger King's. With all this money we're spending, you would expect the government to have strict oversight measures to ensure patients are getting properly informed about transplant. Not just because it's a far better treatment, but because transplant is actually more cost-effective than dialysis. It's cheaper than paying year after year for dialysis. Think of it like buying solar panels. It's a one-time expense for the social good, but really, you're also doing it to save money over time. But unlike solar panels that have a payback rate of 8 to 20 years, a transplant pays for itself in one and a half to two years. A second chance at life for patients, a huge savings for taxpayers, and it's literally costing us one out of every hundred dollars we spend as a country. Who 
currently right now is responsible for educating patients about transplant? That's a good question. So the person that's responsible for educating the patient about transplant is the, it's the clinic's responsibilities. The government says dialysis clinics must inform patients about transplant, but it doesn't mention who or how. The only proof Medicare requires is that a small box on the patient's registration form be checked. It reads, has patient been informed about kidney transplant options? Yes or no? So from our government's point of view, who is in charge is literally everyone and no one. Now, this might not be so risky, but for one problem. Here's Alex Azar, the former Secretary of Health and Human Services, talking to a patient advocacy group. Kidney care has some of the worst incentives in American healthcare. Today, dialysis companies are actually disincentivized from helping patients get ready for and find a transplant. Even though a transplant improves health and dramatically lowers the cost of care, from the perspective of a dialysis company, every transplant is one less customer. To be clear, this isn't a liberal activist railing against the healthcare system. This is a former pharmaceutical executive, former pharmaceutical lobbyist, and former Trump cabinet member saying that the very companies in charge of informing patients about transplant have a financial incentive not to. That every patient who vacates a dialysis chair in favor of a transplant is a loss for that clinic. In the United States, about 70 to 80 percent of dialysis clinics are owned by two for-profit corporations, Davida Kidney Care and Fresenius Medical Care. Browse their websites and you will find information and videos on transplant, like this excerpt from Davida's. After I got my transplant, I started going to the gym and riding a bike every day. My quality of life was better, you sleep better, you have more energy. The transplant's the way to go. But if you take a closer look, most of these videos don't have many views. At most, were uploaded in just the last three to five years. And we'll get to why that might be later. Also, the idea of showcasing media that's for the public good but goes against the bottom line isn't really new. This... If you want to start unsmoking, cut out the cigarettes, cut out the cigars. Oh, that's the best way to go for it. It's from Philip Morris. Now, we all know that the tobacco industry didn't suddenly gain a conscience because nicotine is their business model. Skeptics of Davida and Fresenius will acknowledge that they do provide transplant resources, but kind of in the same way that the fast food industry will throw a salad on the menu. But no one in their right mind believes that the fast food industry is pushing weight loss. Not really, pun intended, their bread and butter. But imagine if the fast food industry was in charge of pushing weight loss. Might raise some eyebrows. Actually, ask yourself, you, I'm talking to you, the person listening right now, what it would take for you to trust a consortium of McDonald's, 
Burger King, Subway, KFC, and Taco Bell to lead the fight against obesity in our country. Any takers? I would argue that the management of those companies aren't sinisterly trying to make people fat. I don't think they wake up in the morning plotting to make the world heavier. I think they're trying to make money. As much of it as they can, because that's their job. And they know that advertising that salad on the menu isn't the way to do it. In fact, if they put too much emphasis on that salad, how much better it is for you than the rest, people might stop coming. All of this is to say that researchers have long been concerned about the quality of the information dialysis patients are being given about transplant. And the dialysis companies seem to have been less than open about that data. I think it would be really helpful if we had data on referral for transplant at these dialysis clinics. Um, I've tried to approach some of these for-profit dialysis clinics to get that data and so far haven't had any luck. So with little help from the large dialysis corporations, researchers have scrambled to find other roundabout ways of investigating the role money plays. I remember one night getting home. I lived like right next to my uh, landlord. And so I was just talking to him on our front porch. He was like, you should look at the dialysis industry. <laughs> this is Paul Elison. Yeah, I'm an assistant professor in the Department of Economics at Brigham Young University. And as economists do, he and his landlord were talking about healthcare mergers and acquisitions. If you look at the healthcare industry over the past few decades, do you see a stunning amount of deals where hospitals are acquiring other hospitals, they're acquiring medical practices, surgical centers, etc. They typically justify these deals with the claim that they'll lead to lower costs. Which, as we know, didn't happen. So I wanted to know if this consolidation could somehow be contributing to the rising costs and poor patient outcomes we all see. So when his landlord told him to look into dialysis... I was floored. In a lot of ways, it mirrors what's going on in the rest of healthcare. But... On steroids. This is an industry that, in a matter of decades, transitioned from one with lots of firms to one where there are just two companies that controlled about 80% of the national market. Second, when you look at how the U.S. stacks up against other countries, there is clearly something very troubling going on. If you look at like how much we spend on dialysis, we're at the top of the distribution. Just like our larger system. And if you look at outcomes, we're not like the dead last, but we're close to it. So we did a study where we looked at how patient experiences and provider practices changed in the first few years after independent dialysis facilities were acquired by corporate chains. So after smaller, independent clinics were purchased to increase the bottom line of larger corporations, what things did those clinics do differently? In this case, between 1998 and 2010. That's when the most intense consolidation was happening. And one of the more striking things we found was that the likelihood of patients getting a kidney transplant or being added to the waitlist decreased by about 9% when the facility was acquired. Getting acquired is just one example. In this large study, we examined more than one and a half million patients from the year 2000 to 2016 and compared their access to transplant by profit status. So how did the clinics for or nonprofit status associate with access to transplant? And we did find that there were differences. 
ranging from 15 to 20 percent, where there was lower access among patients who were dialyzing in these for-profit dialysis facilities compared to the non-profit facilities. Perhaps the most notable thing about these studies is something that's easy to overlook. That is, they measure the differences. They didn't say that independent clinics were getting all their patients listed for a transplant before they were acquired. That should be. Or that nonprofits, by the very nature of being nonprofit, are either. The truth is that nonprofits still operate under the same basic financial incentives as for profits, and that every transplant is still a loss. If you had to guess, out of all the people on dialysis in our country, what percentage haven't been listed that should be? As Dr. Janice Lee took a moment to think about the question, I knew that the number was likely consequential. For the reasons you've heard, and for the many we'll get into. But I would be lying if I said that I was prepared for her answer. If I had to guess, I'd say probably 40% of patients um, that could potentially be listed probably haven't been. And we have 600,000 people on dialysis, so we're talking 200,000 people that could be listed that aren't. Mm Mm-hmm. 200,000 is an enormous number. And while Dr. Lee is a nationally renowned physician, my guess is that there's a decent chance some people listening to this are skeptical, including some nephrologists who would rightly point out that many patients are simply too old or sick to be transplanted, which is why we'll never see that one-to-one ratio. And they would also be right to suggest that even the best doctors are sometimes wrong, which is why people often get a second opinion. So I decided to try and get an interview with a prominent nephrologist who I thought would be more likely to defend the status quo. Hey, I'm here to interview Dr. Alan Missenson. I went to the corporate office of DaVita. So I'm uh, Dr. Alan Nissenson. I'm a nephrologist, currently the Emeritus Chief Medical Officer at DaVita. I just finished 11 years as Chief Medical Officer. I'm also uh, an Emeritus Professor of Medicine at UCLA. I was there for 31 years and Associate Dean of the Medical School for about six years. And Dr. Nissenson has quite the resume. I asked him a lot of the same questions I asked Dr. Lee. So out of the whole dialysis population, 15% are on the list. Okay. From your experience, if you had to say what percentage of people currently on dialysis should actually be on the list? At least half, maybe even more. So what do you think is accounting for that stark difference? So one is futility, the sense that the availability of deceased donors is so problematic that there's no point. But I think there's a large fraction of it related to just not educating patients about what's possible and what the current outcomes of transplant are. I mean, if I were a doctor, and I'm sure you've done this with your own patients, 
that would be the first thing I would mention to them, which is, who do you know? Otherwise, you're going to be waiting 10 years. Yep. No, I agree. Step one for any nephrologist is to be a strong, aggressive advocate for kidney transplantation. This has to be the kind of thing that takes place in multiple conversations, but it can't be like a five-minute thing. You know, transplants are really great. You know, I think you should go get evaluated. Talking to Dr. Nissenson only reinforced what I heard from Dr. Lee and the many other nephrologists I interviewed. Education, so that patients will, among many other things, not believe the idea that there's no point. But so often, this sentiment of why bother seems to be more of a problem with the providers themselves. Yes. Yeah, so this argument I hear every time I give a research talk, I get the, who cares? We don't have enough organs to begin with. What Your work is going to just flood the waiting lists and it's going to become more of a problem that we don't have enough organs. And to that, I usually have a couple of responses, which is, you know, one, it's about equity. If you're just allowing certain patients uh, with certain characteristics that, you know, to get on this waiting list, that's not fair, regardless of how many there are. The other is there's living donor transplants. We would have a larger pool of living donors. Denmark, Switzerland, the Netherlands, New Zealand, Korea have more living than deceased donors, which is to say that if patients are informed and are encouraged to find a living donor, many of them will because their life is at stake. And that wouldn't take away from the shortage. In fact, it would help. Yes. Definitely. But again, they're not getting the education. We've done research trying to understand who is it within the dialysis clinic that's chiefly responsible for education of patients about transplant. And it's often the social worker if there is a social worker. If you take a look at DeVita's website, a social worker's job description mentions 11 tasks, only one of which is to help patients learn about kidney disease, dialysis, and transplantation. There may be some dialysis clinics that are, they have one social worker for four dialysis clinics and hundreds of patients. And so that social worker is trying to visit, you know, multiple patients in multiple days, and they have a high number of patients they're trying to educate about transplant. Is there any other field of medicine that you're aware of where the options in education about treatment are conveyed to a patient by someone besides the doctor? No, I'm not aware of any other field where treatment options are discussed by non-physicians. I'm not. What are your thoughts on that? I think it um, doesn't speak well to to our um, practices that are currently happening in dialysis clinics. Almost every doctor I've spoken with has said that they should be the ones responsible for educating patients about transplant. Because they're the ones who are more educated about the whole process, the qualifications, all of the side effects. And because they're doctors, and their words obviously carry weight. The problem is that the nephrologist may not have the time to devote to this or, or the proper incentive. To understand the incentives of our kidney doctors, 
you have to understand that there are essentially two types of kidney doctors. The overwhelming portion receive the largest bulk of their revenue caring for patients on dialysis. They're paid a set fee per month by the government for every patient dialyzed under their care. Somewhere around $300 per month. The more patients, the more money. But once a patient is transplanted, they don't need dialysis anymore. Most, if not all of their follow-up care, goes to a different type of nephrologist, a transplant nephrologist at the transplant center. So most kidney doctors are paid 12 times per year per patient, which is then cut dramatically, if not completely, once the patient receives the best treatment, which is a transplant. And a vast industry has emerged to accommodate all these patients. And while almost all the media's focus on the bad incentives of kidney care has been on the corporations, just two big for-profit companies, Fresenius and DeVita. Almost none of them have thought to look at the financial incentives of the doctors overseeing the care provided at them. They're both rewarded for taking care of dialysis patients and not getting patients to transplant because that takes away from their bottom line. So should we be shocked that doctors aren't spending a lot of time? I think a a good probably hour. On something that goes directly against their financial interest. You know, I, I think that the time is the major obstacle. Now, um... I don't know how to say this. Uh, it's it's a difficult it's, subject. It's a difficult subject. And I, I know a lot of uh, good kidney doctors who do spend the time to talk to the patients. It's a difficult subject because it pits a doctor's self-interest with the Hippocratic Oath. The health of my patient will be my first consideration they've sworn to uphold. Imagine if you had cancer and weren't told about chemotherapy. Or if your oncologist just kind of brushed over it. So it could be that the provider is just checking off a list. So they're saying to the patient, hey, are you interested in transplant as a treatment option? And maybe the patient has no idea what that is and they say no. And then the provider moves on. When my aunt was diagnosed with cancer, the doctor started off by saying she was very sick. Then they spoke for about an hour, the first of multiple conversations about the way forward. Think about the time you spend with your doctor. The majority of it isn't them doing tests or listening to your lungs or shining a light in your eye. It's talking. When we talk about access to healthcare, its most basic form is information. The ability to decide whether to do chemo or pursue a transplant or any other treatment. My aunt didn't have much of a chance. Statistically less than getting a transplant. But it's hard for me to imagine a doctor rushing her or delegating to a social worker 
who doesn't have the time or a medical degree. Dialysis patients are very sick. As one girl writes, Dialysis was really bad today. I passed out, threw up on myself. I couldn't even walk. Thank God my mom could take me home. I've been doing this for three years now. I'm 21. And days like this, I want to give up. There is no way of knowing how many kidney doctors spend the time. The problem is that Medicare doesn't hold doctors accountable for transplant education. And good luck finding a doctor that will freely admit to defying their Hippocratic Oath. The honest answer lies with the patients, but they have been almost impossible to reach because no dialysis company has an interest in allowing journalists or even academic researchers to question their patients about who is telling them what about transplant. But even if it was impossible, For me to conduct a scientific poll, I wanted to see what I could find. The question was how. It turns out that Facebook has multiple groups dedicated solely to kidney disease, dialysis, and transplant. And they have thousands of members. So I posed a question. How would you rate the education your nephrologist gave you about transplant? I wasn't sure if anyone would reply. But as soon as I hit return, the responses started coming in. Over 130 in the first day. About half of them were really bad many rates of zero or even negative numbers. The comments were disheartening. Many wrote none or what education. Another woman wrote none. He just gave me the number to the transplant center. Another person wrote he never talked to me about it in five years. What's alarming is that this wasn't a scientific poll or average sample. Unlike many others, these patients were assertive. They took the initiative to find online communities to learn more. And yet more than a few commented that almost all of what they know was from Facebook. I asked some of them if they wanted to be interviewed for this series. This was before I met Lance, and I was just starting the process of trying to find subjects to interview. But getting someone to come out on the record was challenging. It's private, and a lot of them didn't have another doctor to go to. Nevertheless, I got frustrated and almost gave up on Facebook. But then... Hello. So you you have a back entrance or something? Ah, the garage is down there. Oh. At this point... I should probably tell you I'm also a filmmaker. Actually, a lot of what I know about kidney failure and transplant started with research I was doing for a screenplay. At the time, I had consulted with numerous doctors, 
And since they weren't being quoted, they felt free to speak candidly. The more I learned, the more disenchanted I became. But also the more I learned, the more I realized I wouldn't be able to cram everything into an entertaining screenplay. So, I decided to produce this series too. Where am I sitting? You're going to sit right there. But like a screenplay, one that was story-oriented, kind of cinematic in quality, something that would hopefully appeal to a broad audience. And in that endeavor, I decided to recreate that scene at the beginning from 1964. And when I thought about who I wanted to play Eugene, one actor came to mind, someone I hadn't spoken with in years. Well, you directed me in a movie. Do you think if I had a problem, I could keep it from everyone? Kind of sounds like... All my heart, I want to live. So I went back on Facebook to see what Tony was up to, and there was this post from his roommate. It read, Tony has been hospitalized for over two weeks this past month. He's still in the ICU, but recovering from chronic kidney failure. And in your immense concern, you called me. (laughs) But instead of first recording the scene, I asked if I could interview him. So it had to be, well, a little over three months ago. And then Dr. mentioned the transplant first because he said, you probably have to lose a a little more weight. You should think about getting a transplant. But I didn't know how to go about doing it. Uh, How long did that last, at least for the transplant part? A few minutes. It can't be like a five-minute thing. You know, transplants are really great. Did they say the benefits of a transplant over dialysis? A strong, aggressive advocate for kidney transplantation. Nope. Did they? So, So it was almost like an alternative option? Yes, exactly. So nobody up until now, me... Yeah. Has talked to you about the advantages. And what the current outcomes of transplant are. Over dialysis. Correct. The mortality rate of dialysis or or over transplant. That's right. I I didn't, I was unaware. I thought, you know, I thought dialysis was good and you can last forever on dialysis. I reached out to the doctor, who was the head of nephrology at the Cleveland Clinic, when Lance was treated there, in the hospital, and as a dialysis patient. According to him, transplant education was done by a nurse, whose services first required a doctor's referral. In our opinion, he writes, this was the only fair and balanced way to assure appropriate guidance and relieve us of the very important but time-consuming function. At this point, you're probably thinking that the financial incentives behind transplant can't get any worse. The clinics don't have an incentive. The doctors don't have an incentive. At least 200,000 patients that should be listed for a transplant aren't and you're paying for it. But if you think that's outrageous, I would brace yourself. This is going to get worse. That and Lance's story continues in the next episode. 
The Great Social Experiment was created, produced, and edited by me, David Chrisman. It was engineered and mixed by Samuel Chacintu. If you liked this series, please share it, subscribe, and leave a review. And if you want to support my work, or you're a patient in need of resources, or just want to learn more, please visit thegreatsocialexperiment.net. That's thegreatsocialexperiment.net. Thanks.